0: We'll hear argument next in Case 10, 12, 11, v. Holder. Mr. Beavis. Mr. Chief Justice,
1: and may it please the Court. As the Government concedes, INA Subsection 101, A13C5, added by Irira, does not expressly mandate retroactivity. Under land graph, applying that new provision would attach new legal consequences to pre irira offenses, penalizing both those who travel and those who don't. Covered lawful permanent residents could not visit their parents abroad without being forced to abandon their children here. They would be removed from the country or else confined here. Either way, they would lose an ability they had under pre-IRIRA law based on pre-IRIRA offenses. Thus, applying the subsection to them would be impermissibly retroactive. The settled expectations at issue here are those of round trips by lawful permanent residents, not, as the government would put it, one-way tickets, or first-time entrants. These are people who have structured their lives here. They have homes, spouses, children, and careers here, and yet have a settled expectation that they will be able to maintain ties to visit aged and ailing parents abroad, to go to funerals and wakes and visit them at the hospital and surgeries. Our amiki, the nactal brief, and the as Asian- As far American. as
2: going forward is concerned, that's, that's just the way it is, right?
1: Yes, because Congress has expressly changed the law post-IRIRA. The question is, for those before IRIRA, whether those settled expectations are being disrupted.
2: Could they — could they — the person who — who is here and then the new law is passed, could that person have petitioned for discretionary relief before traveling?
1: Yes, Your Honor, that is a possibility. That is not the same as the automatic ability to travel. And, in fact, in this case, the discretionary relief was denied. It depends on a different set of factors from the automatic pre ability to travel. Um, but it is a theoretical possibility
0: in some cases. So your expectations argument is that somebody trying to figure out whether to go ahead and, and rob the bank is going to say, well, if I do and I'm caught and I'm found guilty, I won't be able to take temporary trips abroad. So I'm not going to rob the bank.
1: Uh, no, Your Honor. First of all, you phrased it specifically as a, a reliance argument, which is an alternative. Even the government concedes it's not a prerequisite. Second, the right time to look at expectations is the moment before the law is enacted. Does one have an expectation at that
0: point that one will be able to continue? Well, you're concerned under Landgraf, I think, with whether or not it disrupts settled expectations. And it just doesn't seem to me that – this issue enters into the uh, expectations at all when the pertinent act, which is the commission of the crime, not the pleading guilty, uh, takes place? No, Your Honor, I believe
1: the practical impact is a new travel disability or penalty. Just as in Landgraf, the discrimination there had been illegal for decades, yet adding a new form of damages to it was impermissibly retroactive. In Hughes Aircraft, filing false claims with the government had been illegal for years, yet broadening the class of people who could file suit and removing a defense no reliance possible at all, but there was a settled expectation that there would be no additional consequences
3: attached. What's the difference between someone who commits the crime just before the act is passed and someone who commits the crime just after the act is passed? The person who commits the crime just after the act is passed had the expectation prior to the passage of the act that if he did certain things, he wouldn't that he wouldn't have this consequence from his conduct. Congress, of
1: course, has the power to change things. But the expectation until an act is passed is that the consequences are fixed in time. And if Congress decides that the potential unfairness is outweighed by the benefits of making but, the, the act The person who, who,
3: who commits the crime just after the act is passed had the expectation prior to that time that had, if he did certain things in the future, he wouldn't suffer certain consequences.
1: And yet Congress has, has affirmatively warned and put everybody on notice that now uh, there is this new consequence. You may be deterred by this new consequence. We may be punishing you by this new consequence, but the consequence has been announced.
4: First, Mr. Bebas, I, I have — this is almost a question of personal privilege. You, you make your whole argument uh, uh, on, on the basis of land graph. Uh, so does the government — you do not cite, the government cites but does not discuss the relevant portion of a, of a later case which involved the same question, Republic of Austria versus Altman. I concurred separately in Landgraf because I thought that the test that the court was using, upsetting settled expectations, was indeed the proper test for constitutional provisions uh, forbidding ex post facto laws, which is where the Court dro- uh, derived it from, Justice Story's opinion in a New Hampshire constitutional case. But I said in my concurrence that the proper test for, retro- for the other issue of retroactivity, namely, constitutionality aside, does this statute mean to be applied only in the future or uh, in the past? And for that, I propose. Well, I'll read you what we said in Altman. Our approach, which postdates uh, Landgraf, our approach to retroactivity in this case, thus parallels that advanced by Justice Scalia in the concurrence in Landgraf. Quote, and it's quoting the concurrence. The critical issue is not whether the rule affects vested rights or governs substance or procedure. But rather, what is the relevant activity that the rule regulates? Absent clear statement otherwise, only such relevant activity, which occurs after the effective date of the statute, is covered. Most statutes are meant to regulate primary conduct and hence will not be applied in trials involving conduct that occurred before their effective date. But other statutes have a different purpose and therefore a different relative retroactivity event, relevant retroactivity event. And that is what we have here. The, the, the event that is sought to be regulated is entry into the United States, And it is clear that this statute applies only to prospective entry into the United States. It doesn't apply to past entry so that those people who came in in violation of this statute can be deported. Now, why shouldn't we apply that rule in this case as we did in uh, the Republic of Austria case? No, Your Honor. As re- first of all, our reply
1: brief discussed Altman, and the majority of the Court has viewed that as limited to the foreign sovereign immunities context. But
4: taking your, your Wh- test — Why the would theory. it be limited just to the foreign sovereign immunities context? Uh,
1: that, that's the majority's approach. But taking your test on its own terms, what you're pointing out is there
4: is a future — why, why do you say
1: that's the majority's approach? I, I'm sorry, the majority in Fernandez Vargas expressly said that Republic of Austria was in a sui generis context and that its holding shouldn't be extended to Fernandez Vardes. It's, it's, it's holding. Right. Yes. Uh, but to take, to look at your test, you are pointing out that there is a future event, which the government practically its entire theory turns on that. But even if there is a future event, there is a past event being regulated here. And the activity at issue under your test would be the pre-Irira offense, not just the innocent post-Irira travel. What we have is future lawful travel, conceivably lawful, nothing nefarious needs to be shown of well, it. MR. Well, Mr.
5: Beavis, how is it different then from a felon in possession statute, where you look at the past offense, right. and then you say, well, this man, because of that past offense, can't buy a gun in the future. How is it different at all?
1: Your Honor, there are five pertinent distinctions permit me to unpack. The first and most important is that the landgraft test should have a broader scope The ex post facto context in these criminal cases because Congress can override it expressly. Since the ex post facto clauses disable both state and federal legislatures from acting at all. The deprivation of power must be narrow and careful so State and Federal legislatures can continue to regulate felon in possession or racketeering or the other crimes the Government advances. But Landgraf just tells Congress how to legislate. It's a background rule. So it's legitimate to have a presumption against retroactivity sweep more broadly as Congress is free to override it and, as I will explain, does override it regularly. Secondly. Uh, felon in possession is inherently dangerous conduct. This is a protective law. It's not just a punitive or deterrent law. The third and related point is that felon in possession laws are tailored. There's a nexus to a danger, a threat to people suffering
5: firearm violence. Narrowly tailored. Fourth, but why isn't the uh, the government, uh, Congress making the exact same judgment here? If the activity to be regulated is entry, and Congress is making a judgment that we do not want uh, dangerous people to enter, and we're using the conviction, the prior conviction, as a marker for who is dangerous. And that's exactly what Congress has done in the felon in possession statute.
1: Your Honor, I believe the two are quite different. The felon possession is limited to firearms in the hands of proven dangerous people. Here we have a law that says You can stay in the country indefinitely. We're going to discourage you from going abroad and leaving the country because we'll make it harder for you to come back. That's not tailored at all to protecting the people inside the United States. Um, I'd also point out that the felon in possession statute, as this Court noted in Heller, is part of a long tradition of forbidding such activity as a crime. So it's hard to say there are settled expectations being upset by felon in possession laws. And the final one is Congress can do that, simply by being explicit. And it has done so repeatedly in laws such as IRIRA, elsewhere in IRIRA, Section 321B says the aggravated felony definition applies to convictions entered before, on, or after the statute's effective date. It knew how to do it. It did it more than a dozen other times in IRIRA, as this Court noted
6: sincere, It didn't spell it out here. The point of this. The um, career criminal enhancements instead of the felon in possession. Um, and assuming your arguments, what limits can Congress put on anyone um, with respect to future conduct if it's going to be a burden? Under your view, it it stops people from traveling. Um, Korea criminal statutes put on the distinct disadvantage of a longer sentence.
1: Yes, Your Honor, and as we noted, in the criminal context, Um, this Court in Witt and Greiger notes it's a heavier punishment on the new crime because it's aggravated, because it's repeated. And because Congress has more leeway in the ex post facto context and because recidivism enhancements have a long tradition, it's entirely legitimate. There's no need to say that that's punishing the past offense because the future offense it, it's permissible to increase it under the ex post facto clause. And that's an inquiry that's different from the land graft test here, because all Congress has to do is spell out expressly, we want to apply this to convictions entered before, on, or after the statute's effective date, which it did in 321B, which it didn't do here.
6: So if we were looking at the function, Does that argument that you've just made go more to whether or not the BIA's conclusion that Congress intended to um, rescind the uh, Floridi decision, but you assume that's what its intent was.
1: We've assumed arguendo because that's a premise of the question presented. So, if
6: we assume that, if we assume that was Congress's intent, doesn't that start give you the conclusion that Congress intended to undo it? Doesn't that prove that they intended to? affected retroactively?
1: Uh, no, Your Honor, it doesn't. Um, all the, the case law, the legislative history, the other discussion was about certain other aspects of entry doctrine that needed to be changed. The discussion was expressed about saying we're changing the definition from entry to admission because we don't want people who've snuck into the country outside of a- you No, know, no,
6: those go to right. the basic premise. If right. you assume Congress intended to rescind the prior doctrine, isn't that proof itself that it intended to apply the statute retroactively? No, Your Honor. To Cong- this conduct?
1: No, Your Honor. Congress can intend to rescind, to, to abrogate a statute such that it will have no effect going forward. But as this Court noted in Landcraft, the, ex- the background default rule that the public and Congress expects is that new laws will apply prospectively. That has the virtues not only of giving a clear background rule against which Congress legislates, against which it did legislate in IRIRA. But it also forces Congress to advert to the potential unfairness of retroactivity and decide that the benefits outweigh it. That's what this Court said in Landgraf. It makes perfect sense, and that clear statement rule serves the function of of having them smoke out into the open. If you think it's beneficial to make this affect convictions in the past, just say so. But it didn't. um, to go back to our primary point with the practical impact or effect being a new travel disability, the government's argument seems to boil down to that because there is one uh, event that must happen after the statute's effective date, therefore there can be no retroactive effect. Well,
5: that event is the event that the government cares about, which is the entry into the country. It's not as though, the, you know, the, the government says, uh, it just picks an event at random. And, and makes it the trigger mechanism, the government has picked the event that it wants to regulate, which is entry. Uh, yes, Your Honor, but this is an effect test.
1: And under Martin versus Haydex and Landgraf, we have to take a common-sense functional view of what the effects are, the new legal consequences.
0: As I, I would have thought your answer to my colleague would be no. What they want to regulate is the staying in the country. And they're trying to make that as uncomfortable as possible in order to encourage the uh, uh, individual to leave. If he can't go to the, you know, parent's party, the uh, the cousin's wedding or whatever, he's just going to leave, and then once he does, he can't come back. Why Why would the government care? It's a question for them, I'm sure. Why would they care whether somebody that they don't want to be here stays here, It seems, to me, the exact opposite. So I would have thought your your answer would be, no, what they're trying to regulate is not the coming and going, but simply the staying.
1: Yes, Your Honor. You're you're right that, particularly given the strange way in which it's written, it's hard to understand it as something other than a penalty and possibly a deterrent, but certainly a penalty based on past crimes to make life uncomfortable. And that does not speak of a protective, forward-looking, exclusive function, if that's the test. But... To go back to the earlier point, if that were — if we were to follow the, the approach Justice Scalia outlined, that would be the right response. But we don't even need to get there because the primary test under Landgraf is not the point or function or purpose, but an effects test. The effect, as the Government concedes, is to force him to choose between his parents in Greece and his wife, children,
4: career, and home here. there are a lot of — but there are a lot of, but there are a lot of uh, statutes which we interpret to be valid and not retroactive, which have a substantial effect. Uh, you, you can pass a statute altering the rules of evidence, which have the effect of, of making someone who committed a prior murder convictable, whereas before he was not convictable. And we don't just look to the effect and say, well, it, it has that substantial effect, so it's operating retroactively. We say, no, it's a, it's a rule of evidence, it applies in the future. And that evidence can come in. And that, that, that's my problem with this this other approach. There, there are often adverse effects upon activities that occurred before the statute was enacted. But we still regard the statute as perspective only and, therefore, not subject to uh, special rules for people who are affected. Well, setting aside
1: the difference between the ex post facto context and the civil context, uh, and I, I, uh, there, there is the procedural distinction, which I know Your Honor didn't sign on to. It, it's also relevant that here it is directly, expressly tied to a past conduct. It's precondition. It's not even a piece of evidence or something one can draw an inference from. It is a precondition for ineligibility under 101A13C5. And therefore, it looks like the disability that Justice Story said, a disability has to involve future conduct, but if it's expressly disabling future conduct, that's a penalty on past conduct. The disability in St. Cyr of not being able to apply for future discretionary relief, the disability in some other cases of this Court that we found after briefing and alerted opposing counsel to, Cummings versus Missouri and ex parte Garland in Volume 71 of the U.S. reports, even though the law there forbade teaching in the future or holding office or preaching or being a member of the bar, the government's theory would say those are post-enactment things, just refrain from teaching. You don't have a vested right to teach. This Court said no. We recognize those are expressly targeted to punish the past membership in the Confederacy that triggers that disability. And so the government's approach would render the justice story's disability category a nullity.
0: It, Does it matter, from the examples that you just gave, that admission to the United States is a purely a matter of legislative grace while we might conclude that teaching, being member of the bar, whatever, is not?
1: Uh, I don't believe that that is important. That only matters to the vested rights argument. And this Court, in Cummings, said express, expressly it was dealing with a privilege. So, um, moreover well, — I'm sorry, what — and which privilege was that? The
0: privilege of teaching, or the privilege of holding office. So you can't rest on a right privilege. Suppose position. that might have been regarded as such then, but not under current law.
1: Okay. Well, another answer in, in uh, sincere. The government made the same argument, and this court said, "Well, sure, Congress has the plenary power to change the rules anytime it wants. Just do it expressly. The question is not whether Congress can, but whether it has, in fact, changed the rules expressly to to make that express trade-off that the potential unfairness of retroactivity is worth it. Um, Now the final point here, I believe there was some reference earlier to reliance and the offense. And as the government concedes, reliance is not a prerequisite. This Court can rule for petitioner and not even bother with reliance, but the presence of reliance here is an extra factor that – that support that shows the retroactivity to be obvious and severe. So the Court of Appeals' whole premise that reliance is necessary goes away, the government concedes the Court of Appeals implicitly was, was wrong on that. As a practical matter, our point is that defendants rely on the known consequences of offenses when they decide to plead guilty, as this Court recognized in the
0: Well, when they decide to plead guilty. The, the yes, operative issue here is when they commit the crime. Uh, we don't claim that there's a reliance interest in committing the crime, but in the
1: decision to plead guilty as a practical matter, the defendants weigh a number of consequences, and one of those is whether they might have a four-month discount off their sentencing guidelines, which was the inducement here. And another one is, will they ever to be able to see their parents again? So this, so this.
3: Line, your, your position is that only those who have entered a guilty plea uh, are entitled to um, the presumption against
1: non-retroactivity,
3: but not those who have been found guilty?
1: Uh, Your Honor, our primary position is that because reliance isn't necessary, all of them benefit from it because they all have settled expectations.
5: How do you explain Cyr if reliance isn't necessary? St. Cyr is all about reliance.
1: Yes, and at the end of this Court's opinion, the Court said that the presence of this reliance made the retroactive effect especially obvious and sincere, uh, especially obvious and severe in St. Cyr. Um, That did not purport to overrule holdings in Landgraf and Hughes Aircraft, where there had been no legally cognizable reliance. So Sincere is an easy case because of the guilty plea, because of the reliance. But Landgraf and Hughes Aircraft didn't involve any reliance, and there was still retroactivity because the settled expectations were disrupted, because there were new consequences attached to pre-enactment conduct. Um, So regardless of whether there is reliance, there are settled expectations that are upset, by a law whose function
4: or point is to punish and deter misconduct based on past wrongs. My client is- We're we're trying to figure out what Congress intended, right? We're not talking about constitutionality. We're talking about a rule that it's presumed that statutes are only prospective, all right? And, And your argument is the reasonable expectation of Congress when they pass this- was that it would only apply to to people who, what, committed the crime or or, were convicted after the statute passed, just as a matter of Statutory interpretation. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, this, that is the background default rule against
1: which Congress legislates. And in laws such as IRIRA and SORNA and elsewhere, Congress spells out when it wants to apply to pre-enactment offenses, to pre-enactment conduct, that's a defeasible civil retroactivity rule that can reach more broadly than the ex post facto jurisprudence. Well, but do you
5: have any case in which a Court has deemed a statute retroactive even though it wasn't triggered until the party took some further action. Is there any case out there, either from this Court or from another Court, where we've said, you know, um, uh, it's retroactive, even though it depends upon a future event? Yes, Your Honor. Sincere
1: depended on applying for discretionary relief in the future. He didn't have to. Cummings depended on trying to teach or preach or hold office. Ex parte garland, dependent on trying to practice law in the future. Those are all disabilities taking away a future ability based on a past wrong. That's what the disability category has to mean if it's to remain meaningful. And the government's approach would gut Justice Story's fourth category. If there are no further questions, I'd like to reserve the balance of my time.
0: Thank you, counsel.
7: Mr. Miller. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, As the discussion so far this morning reveals, the Court's retroactivity analysis takes account of a number of different factors, but the one that is most significant, and indeed, in this case, virtually dispositive, uh, is that the application of Section 1101A13 to petitioner was triggered only because he engaged in voluntary conduct that postdated the enactment of the statute.
5: What what do you take the trigger to be? Because in your brief, you kept on talking about the trigger being the trip, and I would have thought that you would have talked more — about uh, the activity being the attempt to enter the country
7: well, that that's i mean they're closely connected together in time and they both, but they both post-state the enactment uh, of the statute but what the thing that is being regulated uh, by section 1101 a13 is the entry of aliens into the united states the, the statute sets out a comprehensive scheme for determining when uh, an alien arriving at the border or seeking to come into the United States should be regarded as seeking an admission. Um, so that's, that's conduct that takes place in the future. Um, part A uh, of 1101 E13 sets out the general definition of admission, uh, and then C sets out a number of uh, exceptions. Uh, and so taken together, uh, they're part of a comprehensive effort uh, to, to codify Flutie in some respects, uh, and in particular, uh, Roman, Romanet II Uh, The 180-day provision uh, is actually a a fairly generous uh, codification of Flutie, uh, probably extending beyond what would have been regarded as a brief trip. Also,
0: I I have to say, I just don't understand this statute. This is somebody we would not allow into the country. And yet the only thing we say is you can't leave. I just don't understand how that how that works.
7: I, I think there are, there are two points uh, to be made about that. And the first is that that is a feature of the statute writ large. I, I mean, that, that exists even with respect to post-enactment uh, criminal convictions. So it's, Oh, right. Uh, and, and the second, I think, to understand it, it's helpful to look at the history. Uh, the distinction between uh, grounds of inadmissibility and grounds of deportability uh, goes back all the way to the 1917 uh, Act in that statute. Um, a single crime of moral turpitude was a basis for inadmissibility, but was generally not a basis for deportability unless it had a one-year sentence and was committed within five years. Well, I know,
0: months. and I understand that, though, it's a limitation on actually deporting the person. But here, I would think the one thing you want the person to do is leave. Maybe for a, a particular event, but maybe he'll decide to stay in, in Greece once he's there for the... But it, it seems very odd to say, we're going to show you how much we don't want you here. We're not going to let you leave.
7: I think what, the, what this history shows is that it's the crossing the border that has always been regarded as a legally significant event. Uh, this court's case but is it wasn't recognizing before
2: that. We I think we have held that an immigration lawyer is obliged to tell a defendant based with a criminal charge what the legal lawyer cons- what the immigration consequences will be. And here, suppose bef- before the, at the time of the plea, in this case, the a- attorney had said, once you've served your time, you will be able to take brief casual trips. That would have been accurate advice, right? Right? Before I, I, well, I, I
7: think, I think the, the most important point about the consequence of the plea is that as a re, an immediate result of the plea, under pre-IRIRA law, <clears throat> so at the time he pleaded guilty in 1994, he made himself inadmissible. Uh, so that's not anything that has changed. So he but knew but that I'm asking
2: you, the lawyer, talking to the client, and the client wants to know, before I enter this plea, what will be the consequence for me? And the question that's asked is, "Will I still be able to visit my mother in Greece?" What should the lawyer What should the lawyer at that time have answered?
7: I, I think the the lawyer should have said, "By pleading guilty, you are making yourself inadmissible to the United States." Uh, well, under way, Rosenberg would have been the law, Flutie, and the answer to the question would have been, "Yeah, you can make trips abroad well, that, with that's this." The, and, and <clears throat> that, that's right, and, and and I think you might also have said that under current law. Um, you, you will not be regarded as seeking an admission if you take a brief, casual, and innocent trip. But the the change uh, in the law.
5: Right. Well, well, that's what's going to be important to the person, right? It's not inadmissible in all the legal terms. Am, am I going to be able to make short trips to visit my mother? Yes, you are going to be able to make short trips to visit your mother. And then you wake up the next morning and Congress has passed a statute, and now you're not able to take short trips to visit your mother. So something very real has happened to the life of this person.
7: Well, that, that's, that's right. I mean, and there's no, there's no question but that there is a, a serious consequence as a result of the change in the law. But the Court um, has made clear in Landgraf and in a number of other cases that even uncontroversially prospective statutes
3: uh, can impose a burden. That's true. But in in St. Cyr, as I read it on pages 322 and 23 the Court focused directly not on the crime point of time, but the time of the guilty plea. And what the Court says there is that a person who is thinking of pleading guilty might well have taken into account the fact that he could ask the Attorney General later, when he's about to be deported, to exercise discretion in his favor. So that's, as I read those pages, you can say, Uh, why I'm not reading them correctly, but that's how I read them. And then, having read it that way, I thought the question in this case is whether the person who's sitting at the table and deciding whether to plead guilty or not is likely to think, well, if I plead guilty, I can always ask for discretion. That's sincere. Well, if I plead guilty, I can still visit my aging parents and grandparents, a matter that could be of importance to some people, as opposed to whether I will never see them again. Now, that seems to be the question. Is the second as likely to be in the person's mind as the first? And to tell you the truth, I don't know the answer. I mean, maybe it would be. There isn't that much chance of getting discretion. It might be important to some people to visit their aging parents and grandparents. So go ahead. Answer the question. Is the one more important than the other? And if not, why not?
7: I I think you've correctly described the the reasoning of the Court in St. Cyr. Mm -hmm. And I think that that reasoning highlights two ways in which this case is significantly different. And the first is that in St. Cyr it was the guilty plea, the conviction, Uh, that was legally significant under the provision of IRIRA at issue there. And and the Court emphasized um, that that a guilty plea is a quid pro quo. It has to be knowing and voluntary. The Court cited Santa Bello against New York, a due process case about guilty pleas. Um, And and so one difference in this case is that the legally significant event here No, but I'm I'm really asking you,
3: isn't my question the key question? Now, you can answer that no. But, I I, I mean, I, I suppose you could prove that the only thing that mattered to uh, to LPRs who plead guilty, the only thing that mattered was was uh, uh, visiting their parents and grandparents. I, a matter I doubt. But you can say even on that situation it would make no difference, or you could say I think the one's as important as the other, or you could say they're not. I just want to get your full answer, all your whole answer to my question. I mean, the, the conclusion to the first
7: part of the answer is that it wouldn't make a difference because. Uh, What matters here is not the guilty plea. What what triggers the application of 1101 uh, A13C uh, is the underlying criminal conduct. You're
5: quite right, Mr. Miller, as a formal matter, that that's true, that that's the words of the statute. But how many times has the Department of Homeland Security tried to declare a person inadmissible on the basis of the commission of a crime without putting into evidence either a conviction or a guilty plea? I
7: I don't have... Uh, any...
5: I can't imagine that it's like more than on one, you know, five fingers of your hand. I mean, that's the way people prove crimes in this area, isn't it? By convictions or guilty pleas. Well, I, I would
7: say that uh, this is this is a statute convictions
5: after trial or convictions by guilty pleas.
7: Uh, the, the statute is being applied by, in the first instance, by customs officers at the airport or at the land border crossing. They have access to uh, a number of databases, uh, which include not only records of convictions. Uh, but also things like arrest warrants, and an arrest warrant by itself would not not be enough to show uh, that a person had in fact committed an offense. Uh, but it might well trigger some further inquiry from the customs officer that would lead uh, to to uh, them finding out more information or perhaps getting an admission.
5: Uh, if, from the as person. a fact of the matter, the way the commission <clears throat> of crime is proved in this area is through showing a conviction, does your distinction stand up at all? Uh,
7: I, I mean, I, I think there is still, I think, uh, a significant formal distinction. And then there's also a, another important distinction from St. Cyr, uh, which is that that was a case where, uh, as a result of the guilty plea plus the change in law, uh, the person there faced immediate deportability with no prospect of discretionary relief. And the Court said that there is a clear difference for purposes of the retroactivity analysis between a possibility of deportability and uh, a certainty uh, of deportation. Here... Um, not only is, is he not deportable, but there's no immediate consequence uh, for him at all. Uh, the statute only has any effect on him when he engages in the post-enactment travel. And what think- about the
2: characterization, which seemed to me to make common sense? Yes, the trigger is that he has gone abroad as returning, but the target, they say, was the crime. That's why the uh, the law, the, the law really doesn't care about the travel back and forth, but it cares about it that this person was convicted of a crime.
7: I, I, I don't think that's uh, correct, Your Honor, and, and I think that, that highlights one of the distinctions between uh, this case and uh, Cummings against Missouri and Expert A. Garland. In those cases, you had statutes that were nominally uh, prospective in application, but the Court uh, actually said that we, we think that what's really happening here is the statutes are imposing punishment for the completed acts. Uh, and to the extent there was any doubt in those cases themselves uh, that this Court discussed them both in Harrisides against Shaughnessy uh, and said that it, it viewed them as cases about punishment. Uh, this is not a statute. Isn't that mature.
6: case here? Meaning it goes back to the Chief Justice's question, which is what they're trying to do is punish those individuals, those LPRs, who have committed this kind of crime by not letting them travel or come back in. That's really what their argument is, is, you know, you are imposing a punishment, a disability, for having committed the crime. You're not imposing a disability merely for the act of traveling. Well,
7: I mean, I, I think when you look at the statute as a whole, Uh, you see that it's a a comprehensive regulation uh, of crossing the border, which has always been regarded as as a legally significant event. Uh, There are six uh, subparts to 1101A13C. Five of them uh, have nothing to do uh, with past conduct. Uh, They're about the the nature of the trip uh, and what the the alien is doing uh, as he's coming in. Uh, And then you have uh, have this one, which is – of a piece with uh, the long history of drawing a distinction between inadmissibility and deportability. And I think it recognizes what, what
0: is the What is the policy underlying the rule that doesn't allow somebody who has a lawful status here to go to his grandmother's funeral I, I, I and think come back? It's going to take four days. He goes, he comes back. What policy uh, supports prohibiting that travel?
7: I mean, I, I think it – reflects a, a judgment you know, over the on the part of Congress over many, many years that it is one thing to say to an alien, you know, all right, we're not going to go and try and find you and take you and kick you out of the country. Uh, it is quite another to say uh, you may freely cross our borders even after having left. Uh, you may come back and we're without any inquiry. Okay, there are two
0: here. different things, but I don't know that you've articulated what the policy is to prevent, prohibit somebody from doing that. I mean, uh,
7: uh, other than you know, re- referring you to, to the to the history and to the, the idea that 's been reflected, um, this court has recognized that control over the border uh, is a, a core sovereign prerogative that lies at the heart of congress 's immigration power and I think well I congress suppose you could say that
4: there's a, a likelihood of quite uh, inequitable enforcement if indeed uh, you adopt a position we 're going to pick up all of these people and send them away it 's not going to happen it'll it'll be hit and miss. And uh, on the other hand, uh, you can enforce it uh, uh, rigorously and uh, equitably upon everyone if you uh, only uh, forbid reentry to those people uh, who want to come back in and who have to, you know, uh, give their names to immigration, and uh, you can check on, on this status. That seems to me a... A sensible reason?
3: That, 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 that's right. And Why do you, that, look, as I read the statute, it isn't even clear whether it overrules Rosenberg versus Flutie. I mean, they talk about admission, but admission, after all, could have an exception for the four-day trip. That's what the Court said effectively in Rosenberg versus Flutie. So Congress certainly wasn't clear on what policy they're following. I would have thought that. Uh, and, uh, you can disagree with that, but, I, because the, but the, the, the part that's still gnawing at me. Ninety five percent of the people plead guilty. You know, everybody pleads guilty. Uh, all about, about. And now the the consequence that this ex post enacts is he can't take the four day trip. And you keep saying, well a four day trip requires action on a person's part. Right. Of course it does. So why does that matter? I mean the fact is he can't take the four day trip. A four day trip requires action. You have to buy a trip ticket. You have to get on a, tri- uh, a plane. So? Well, I, I
7: think if I could just first address the, the question of whether the, the statute, in fact, uh fluty, and just to be clear on that, the question presented assumes that it does. Petitioner isn't challenging that, and the Board uh, in the Colado munoz decision has explained why um, the, the statute, in fact, does have that effect. Um, and I, I think that the significance of this post-enactment conduct, the significance of the trip, Uh, is illustrated by by this Court's decision in Fernandez Vargas, um, which made clear that when you have — when the application of the statute is within the control of the person to whom it's being applied, because he has to do something after it comes into effect, Um, there it was choosing to remain in the United States and becoming subject to the, the reinstatement of a prior order of removal uh, here it's taking the travel. Uh, but that uh, goes a long way towards establishing that uh, it, it doesn't have a retroactive effect, that it's regulating uh, future conduct. Uh, another.
6: In the Fernandez case, um, the illegal act was remaining. And so that was within your control. But the, you can't undo an illegal act that you've done to be able to travel. The act is now part of your background. And so there's nothing in your control to change that act once the statute has passed. Well, so you're, you're, you're carrying that around as a disability.
7: In, in Fernandez Vargas, the, the conduct that subjected the alien to the application of this, this procedural, you know, this disadvantageous removal procedure was remaining in the United States. And it's true that that conduct was unlawful, uh, but, for purposes of the retroactivity analysis, the court uh, didn 't focus on whether it was lawful or unlawful. What matters is that it was conduct that was in the future that was after the statute was uh, enacted and so uh, here, although the uh, the trip is not uh, unlawful in that sense, uh, it is future conduct and Here, as in Fernandez Vargas. Uh, There is ample warning, which was another point the the Court emphasized in that case, ample warning that uh, the statute would be applied to people who engaged uh, in that conduct. Uh, I do want to address your
5: uh, — It can't be right that it's any future conduct. If if there's a trigger mechanism that is entirely random, you know, it's a — you can be deported uh, if you've committed a crime of moral turpitude in the past — but not until you go to the movies on a Saturday. And surely that would not change the analysis. I
7: think that's right, Your Honor, and, and I think the, the reason it wouldn't um, is reflected in some of this Court's uh, in, in the ex post facto uh, analysis. If you have a statute that, uh, for example, makes it a crime to have engaged in certain conduct in the past and then, you know, something, some commonplace, utterly trivial activity uh, in the future, I think a court looking at that would say, uh, this is not a, although it is nominally prospective, this is really a statute aimed at punishing the prior conduct.
4: Uh, well, I, I, I don't know. I think it would be prospective and unconstitutional because it's irrational. I mean, not, not, not everything that's unconstitutional is unconstitutional. Not everything that is unconstitutional is not prospective, it seems to, or, or do you think that's so? If if it is unconstitutional in violation of the ex post facto law, the statute has to be has to be uh, uh, I'm sorry has to be uh, assumed not to cover that prior conduct. Is that right?
7: I mean, I I think the the, the hypothetical statute I was describing, I think, would violate the ex post facto clause under the, the sort of analysis that this Court used um, in Smith against Doe, in okay. upholding, and, and
4: if it does, it automatically has to be interpreted not to
7: cover that. Well, yeah, I My mean, reason of the presumption. of Oh, it, it, in, it, you mean, if you mean a, a parallel statute in the civil context. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, I, I, I think that's the best reading of, of Landgraf, and, and I think under under the analysis uh suggested in, in your concurring opinion in land graph i think one would look at that statute and say this is really a statute that's um, aimed at regulating um, the, the past conduct and that that has a retroactive uh, effect um, so i mean I, I, to uh, finish that thought i i think i would uh, just say that there is a narrow category of cases where uh, you have what is in form a, a prospective regulation that's really aimed at, um, aimed at burdening or punishing uh, a past act, uh, but this is not that. And how
5: do we separate those two? How do we decide that this is not that and that it's instead something else? That it's a regulation of future conduct.
7: Uh, in, in the criminal context, uh, the, the court has used uh, the analysis of Kennedy against Mendoza-Martinez uh, to figure out whether a statute is is imposing additional punishment. Uh, for past conduct, and that looks at a number of factors. And the most important factor uh, under that test, the Court has said, is whether the statute appears to be related to a legitimate uh, prospective regulatory purpose. And so that's why, for example, uh, statutes like 922G, uh, the felon in possession statute, which was, I, I would point out, amended um, just back in 1996 to add misdemeanor crimes of domestic violence, uh, which had not previously been uh, something that would subject one to a uh, firearms disability, Uh, that was added. Every Court of Appeals that has considered the question has held uh, that it doesn't violate the ex post facto clause, and I think implicitly uh, has held um, that it does, in fact, reach that conduct. Even even if you had pleaded
4: guilty to uh, uh, spousal abuse? I'm
7: not aware of any cases specifically addressing that question, but um, But, yes, because there you have a statute that is regulating future conduct. It only applies to somebody who engages in the future conduct. Um, The sex offender registration laws um, are another example that this Court has upheld. Uh, That kind of law obviously imposes a a very significant burden on people uh, on the basis of prior conduct. But the fact that there is some burden uh, by itself uh, does not mean that the statute is retroactive, nor does it mean that it's appropriately viewed as imposing a disability. I mean, I, I think that uh, the court in, in Landgraf um, quoted Justice Story's formulation of a, of a disability as uh, referring to statutes that impose a disability in respect to transactions that are already passed. Uh, so it is not enough that There used to be something that you could do, and now, in the future, you're not going to be able to do that. That's not uh, a disability in the relevant sense. Uh, And if it were, I think the Court would have a very difficult line-drawing problem to figure out uh, why it is that statutes like 922G are okay, um, or or sex offender registration laws,
3: or or any number of — That's why I think the Chief Justice's question and the ambiguity of the statute are relevant. Like with Sorna, you would apply it backwards, because that's a pretty clear intent. I don't know about, uh, you know, like three times in your out statutes, et cetera. But, but here you have the, the disability on the ones, the disadvantage to the person pleading guilty, that problem on the one hand. And on the other hand, you have the policy that, with a stat fill in the blank, with a statute that doesn't talk about it, but simply uses a new definition of admission or admissibility. That's — do you want to say something about that?
7: I think if you're you're asking whether uh, Congress has specifically addressed the temporal scope of the statute, we we acknowledge under St. Cyr that it it hasn't, and so that's
3: why we're at — Step more than that a... what is i 'm ignoring more than that i 'm saying what 's the policy on the other side, the policy that favors the retroactivity despite the fact that the person might not have pleaded guilty and that 's why I was interested in the chief justice 's question and also the ambiguity of the language in the statute that they used
7: I think the the, the policy is uh, Congress was trying to redefine um, i mean they're replacing the old term of entry and replace it with a new concept of admission they're trying to redefine a comprehensive scheme for regulating the treatment of aliens arriving at the border Um, and i think you have to look at all the parts of it together uh, as a scheme that was to be applied going forward uh, when people arrived uh, at the border in in the future after the enactment of the statute There are no further questions.
0: Could you go over again for me your distinction of St. Cyr?
7: I think it's twofold, Your Honor. Uh, The first is that in St. Cyr, the legally significant event was the conviction. It was the guilty plea. Uh, Here, um, the guilty plea is significant because it makes uh, petitioner inadmissible, but that was true under current law.
0: You don't argue that the significance of what the individual is giving up makes a difference?
7: Oh, that, that's our, our second point, is that uh, St. Cyr said there's a, a big difference between immediate deportability and the potential
0: uh, is, there, is there a difference in terms of what they face if they don't plead guilty? I, I've always had difficulty with St. Cyr and the notion that, say, someone pleads is facing, you know, 10 years and they plead, uh, plead guilty to two years. Uh, that the, the, the reason they did that is to, uh, you know, avoid one of these immigration provisions. It seems to me that it is to avoid eight years. I, I, and I just wonder if the relative significance of what is at issue under the immigration law is something that we can take into account or if St. Cyr prohibits that.
7: No, I, I think it, it is certainly appropriate to take into account that however, however significant the um, application of fluidity might be to aliens, it's – on a different order of uh, significance.
5: Well, Mr. Well, Miller, the Solicitor General actually represented to us in the Judah-Lang argument, used that as an example, the Flutie case, as something that uh, people doing pleas did think about and did rely upon.
7: Well, I, I think and we, we don't question that that's something that people might have uh, have been aware of and have been thinking about, but it's not something that was bargained for uh, in the plea agreement, because it's not something that's affected uh, by the plea agreement. Uh, the statute here uh, is triggered by the, by the post-enactment conduct of entering the country, but it also by the, the pre-enactment conduct of committing the crime. And, and as petitioner has acknowledged, uh, there isn't any reliance uh, in, in the state of immigration law uh, when you choose to commit the crime. Uh, so I think that's, that's a difference from uh, the scenario that was addressed in Judaline. Lang.
0: Thank you, Mr. Thank Miller. You. Uh, Mr. Beavis, you have six minutes remaining. Thank you, Your
1: Honor. I'd like to make five points. The first one is, this statute is poorly tailored to any protective or forward-looking effect. As the Court has noted, it's perverse effect is to discourage people from leaving the country to keep them in. So any idea that the purpose is to get them out just doesn't square with the way the statute is written. As Justice Ginsburg noted, while the post-IRIRA innocent travel may be the trigger here, the obvious target is the pre-IRIRA offense. The statute is tied to misconduct. The natural inference of making misconduct not just a piece of evidence but a prerequisite is that it is the misconduct that is being penalized. Second, the impact, we suggest, is the relevant test. The impact is a penalty. It is a disability based on a past act that Mr. Vartalas is now helpless to undo. That is all that is required under Landgraf. If Congress thinks it important, it can expressly require retroactivity, but it hasn't done so. Third, let me make clear that we have alternative theories here. Reliance is something that makes the case worse. Uh, it is something that exacerbates the problem, makes it obvious and severe. And our amici, the NACTO brief, points out very movingly how important These kinds of considerations are in immigrants' decisions to plead guilty. Here, for example, my client received a four-month discount off his sentencing range. It's entirely plausible to believe that immigrants in his situation might value the ability to stay in the same country with their four-year-old and two-year-old child as much as four months in jail. But our broader theory is that the violation of settled expectations is sufficient. Whether or not there's reliance, the settled expectation that one has of planning one's life in this country and yet having relatives abroad one will tend to or care for their business, etc., that is sufficient. Just as in Landgraf and Hughes Aircraft, there were no legally cognizable reliance interests in discriminating or in submitting false claims, but changing the penalties is enough. Fourth, this Court's decision in sincere, I believe, strongly helps our case. The first reason is that it imposed a disability, a disability on filing in the future for discretionary relief, but as a practical matter, it's burdening past conduct. Secondly, Sincere didn't purport to change the holdings in Landgraf and Hughes Aircraft, that those are other ways of showing impermissible retroactivity. The logic in Sincere is ineluctable, that because you are burdening A decision, a decision that, as the the Court in the Amici and Sincere noted, matters greatly and factors into things like the plea bargaining calculus, that the retroactivity is especially obvious and and, um, severe. And let me note that Sincere was decided under this same statute, a privilege, not a right, a privilege that Congress can abrogate at any time. That did not influence this Court's holding at all. The right privilege distinction is dead in this area of law. If there is a privilege under IRIRA to apply for discretionary relief, there is a privilege to not be subject to the disability on one's traveling and returning. Finally, let me talk about the criminal civil line. I believe my brother here introduced Smith versus Doe and mentioned some of the sex offender cases. I've explained why the criminal cases in ex post facto are different, but let me go into some more detail. As the court is well familiar with Smith versus Doe. That was a civil case that Doe attempted to turn into a criminal case under the very demanding standard in Kennedy versus Mendoza Martinez. But that's a very uphill fight as the court's opinion recognized The Court must be very deferential before turning something facially civil into criminal, because then it's categorically forbidden, and it comes with the criminal procedure protections in the Bill of Rights. That's not what we're doing now. We're not trying to say this law is forbidden. Smith versus Doe involved a law where the Court's opinion said on its face, the legislature made it retroactive. It says it's retroactive. The federal law, SORNA, is expressly retroactive in Section 113D. IRIRA is expressly retroactive. That's a different inquiry where you're asking does the ex post facto clause forbid something that's expressly retroactive? Does Mendoza Martinez turn it into a criminal case? Versus here, where it's not retroactive, all Congress has to do is spell it out. If this Court adheres to its previous jurisprudence, the the guidance to the drafters across the street is clear. Just draft the statutes the way you've always been doing it, say before, on, or after our effective date. Do you
3: think we have the authority to tell Congress how to draft its laws? I thought what we were doing was trying to infer what they intended. Yes, Your Honor. We we send them a drafting manual? Now, you can do this, but you can only do it if you do it if you follow the steps that we've prescribed. I mean, you've said this over and over. It seems to be completely unfounded.
1: Uh, Your Honor, this Court has said that it's important to adhere to its traditional tools of statutory construction because it's a settled background rule against which Congress legislates, which it is aware of.
4: Uh, I think Landgraf is clear and settled. And, and you, you're, you're over there in Congress and you say, boy, I know how this statute's going to come out under Landgraf. Yes, Your Honor. Better me, than
1: I am. Let, let me explain. La- this Court decided Landgraf two decades ago. A few years after Landgraf, uh, Congress passed IRIRA in 1996. IRIRA contains express retroactivity provisions that go hand-in-glove with the Landgraf presumption. And then Congress passed SORNA, to which my brother alludes. SORNA in 2005, likewise, in Section 113D, says, yes, this sex offender registration shall apply, the the Attorney General can apply it to people with pre-SORNA convictions. Congress understands the land graft presumption. In those statutes and others, it has legislated against it. It can continue to do it because this Court should continue
4: to use its traditional tools. As well, to that, that can be explained because Congress understands that who knows whether it's going to be held to be retroactive or not. If you, sh- if you surely want it to apply, you better say so. If, if that's the rule you want us to adopt, that's okay. Yes, Your
1: Honor. In a clear statement, rule has that virtue, as I believe Your Honor is well aware. For all these reasons, we ask this Court to reverse the judgment below and remand.
0: Thank you, Counsel. Counsel, the case is submitted.